Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, the 19th of July. Tom Tilly with you for a day that in the UK many are calling Freedom Day. Prime Minister Boris Johnson there has sold it as a day where Great Britain goes back to life as it was before COVID. So on today's briefing, what's going to happen there once COVID restrictions are fully lifted? What will be a really interesting question is what is the public's new threshold of deaths per day that they're prepared to wear? And if it gets into several hundred a day, then things are going to get tricky. We'll be watching it closely from here in Australia, that's for sure. Um, Their vaccination rate is much higher than ours. uh, But still, many health professionals in the UK, I think the government are getting it wrong. For this to be happening at a time when cases are literally going through the roof, it just undermines confidence in the messaging. And that is really bad when you're trying to bring a pandemic under control. Freedom Day in the UK, that's our briefing in just a moment. First, Annika's here with the news headlines. And Annika, we're starting uh, with the story that you're working on very closely. Yes, Tom, I've been covering this all weekend. There's now growing doubts Victoria will be able to emerge from the COVID lockdown tomorrow after cases have been uncovered in regional parts of the state. Now, those areas were originally promised an early reprieve, but that is unlikely. The five-day lockdown was meant to end tomorrow night, but News Corp's reporting that it's now likely to be extended until the end of the week. It comes after a COVID-positive man travelled from Melbourne to his hometown of Mildura on the border of New South Wales, 500 k's from Melbourne. Uh, He was among the 17 new cases announced yesterday. The man in his 30s is believed to be one of a growing number of people who who caught the virus after attending an AFL match at the MCG in Melbourne a week ago. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews warned yesterday the cases in regional Victoria showed just how quickly this Delta variant could spread. I think the Mildura case just demonstrates um, the state, from, from a virus point of view, the state's a lot smaller than it might seem. So, Annika, you've been making calls to state government ministers. What are they telling you? Look, we were originally meant to come out of this Tuesday midnight, so it's Monday now. My understanding is there will be a meeting this morning to tick this off. I think that is extending it. I think at the moment uh, they're hoping case numbers will drop and that's the only way we'd get out of it early. Most people around here have the sort of thought, well, we're in it now. It's been five days let it run to the end of the week. I've already planned not to send the kids to school or plan that social occasion this week. And hopefully by next weekend, they're much lower. The good news is, Tom, all of the current cases, even though it was 17 today, are known transmissions. You know, they're through, they're not mystery cases. They can see how they've got them. And that's what we're really on alert for. And so far, none of those have emerged. Well, in New South Wales, uh, restrictions have gotten a lot tougher in the last few days. All non-urgent construction has ground to a halt and public transport services will be cut in Sydney as the city continues to record around 100 new COVID cases a day. We won't see the effects of these harsher restrictions until at least five or six days. We don't expect to see that number shift massively for the next uh, few days. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian speaking there yesterday. Public transport services across Greater Sydney will be cut by 50% from today and most services will run on a Sunday schedule in a further effort to stop the virus from spreading. Yeah, and Gladys Berejiklian is on the front page of the Daily Telegraph today, not wearing a mask after having been to her local coffee shop. So she's under pressure from all quarters. Certainly this news about construction, Annika, over the weekend really rocked Sydney. I was just out the front of my apartment block yesterday and there was a guy who's an electrician and he was sitting there basically calling his colleagues, working out 
what they were going to do and what kind of financial support they were going to get. And so said, look, there's that $600 weekly payment. He goes, yeah, that's what we're looking at right now. That $600, of course, is part of the new JobKeeper Light, which seems to be a replacement to what the government was doing last year when people who were out of work, and that included tradies, especially in Melbourne, had that $1,500 a fortnight as their backup. So it looks increasingly like the government are going to be under pressure to keep this payment going, given how serious things are in Sydney, Tom. Yeah, and speaking of the federal government, the news polls are shocker today, Annika. Yeah, this is pretty bad for the government. So they've been hovering around, you know, 48%, 49%, which a lot of people would say is close enough. It's within the margin of error. But today, Labor has increased its lead over the coalition to 53% to 47%. Now, that is the lowest electoral position the Morrison government's been in this term. And that includes when he took that controversial trip to Hawaii. So I spoke to a few ministers last night, had a few texts going back and forward. They are very worried about this one. So when they're that worried, what do they do? Does it sort of start to undo the unity in the government or do they just band together and write it out? Look, in the past it has. That's when we've seen other leaders sort of their their leadership come under pressure. I think the problem for the government now is they know what this is linked to. This is all linked to the vaccine. And until there's more of it, there's not a lot they can do. So they hope to be able to turn it around. And look, one thing I've learned about Scott Morrison writing about him regularly is he's an election master. He knows all the stats. He's really into polling. And come close to the election, I think things might tighten up a little bit. But it's really just a waiting game until we get those vaccines and they would be hoping like hell that this doesn't get a lot worse before it gets better. And there's been a lot of outrage about a British uh, commentator, Katie Hopkins, who is here for Big Brother on Channel 7. She was um, bragging to her followers about flouting hotel quarantine rules in Sydney. And uh, there was a lot of pushback online and Channel 7 have decided to drop her. And once she finishes her hotel quarantine, (laughs) she'll be sent straight home. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk will arrive in Tokyo this morning to help secure Brisbane's Olympic bid as the Tokyo Games deals with a spate of COVID infections. Yeah, the Premier flew to Tokyo with fellow state leaders last night ahead of Wednesday's vote uh, of the IOC members to confirm Brisbane as the host of the 2032 Games. Now, this trip comes as the Tokyo organisers record the first cases inside the Olympic Village with two South African soccer players testing positive. It brings the total number of cases linked to the Games to 10. The other COVID-positive cases are included in the media contingent and among officials. Most of Australia's team arrived in Tokyo yesterday and swim coach Rowan Taylor told reporters they were confident organisers could deal with the cases in the village. We've heard that, but, uh, you know, they've got protocols in place and we'll look after ourselves, so we'll be safe. So when it reaches full capacity, the Olympic Village will get to 11,000 athletes and thousands of other support staff, so it'll be a tricky one to manage. And the star of the controversial Port Arthur Massacre movie has won the award for Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival. He was an American actor uh, who played the Australian part. His name's Caleb Landry-Jones. He was awarded the prize by the jury at the prestigious film festival overnight. And this is the film that many Tasmanians asked them not to make, saying that any film about the Port Arthur Massacre should have focused on the victims, not the killer, who they've been trying to starve of any notoriety. But the film got a big reaction in Cannes. The Herald reported that it got a seven-minute standing ovation, so it's clearly going down well with the international community. 
And in a moment, we'll take you to the UK for our briefing. But the latest news there overnight is that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is among a number of senior British politicians isolating after a colleague caught COVID-19 as the UK prepares to mark Freedom Day. The country's finance minister is also in isolation after their new health minister, Sajid Javid, tested positive for the virus yesterday. Johnson originally intended to keep working as part of a new pilot scheme for how they respond to COVID cases, but he backflipped and the plan was dropped and he went into isolation at his country residence. So more on that after the break. Uh, Jan will join us. Annika, will catch you tomorrow. Hello, it's Jan Fran and so-called Freedom Day is here, but definitely not for Sydney and Victoria. We're talking about Freedom Day, so-called Freedom Day, for the Brits. We're very likely to be in a, in a position on July the 19th to say that that really is the, the terminus and we can uh, go back to uh, life as it was before COVID. So that's the British PM Boris Johnson about a fortnight ago announcing that uh, from today... COVID restrictions will end across the UK. There'll be no more compulsory social distancing or mask wearing and nightclubs and all kinds of uh, places are reopening. Yeah, but right as freedom is arriving, so too is a fourth wave of COVID cases. So the daily cases um, in the UK are edging towards 40,000 a day, which is about two thirds as bad as their third wave in January, where daily cases got up to 60,000. Yeah, so those case numbers are pretty concerning. But thanks to the vaccine rollout, which is at 66% of Brits fully vaccinated, there is some good news when you look at the hospitalisation and the death rates. Um, They're dramatically lower than during that January spike. So even though the case numbers are two-thirds as bad, hospitalisations are only one-seventh or one-eighth of what they were in Jan, and deaths are below 5% of what they were. They're around 40 a day, whereas in January they were up around 1,300 a day. Yeah, so it shows that their immunisation strategy is working. It was never going to stop COVID cases from spreading in the community, but it was designed to stop people getting hospitalised and dying, which is what people mean when they say we need to live with COVID. We're hearing that more and more. Yeah, so this is a massive turning point for the UK right now and the world is watching on because their vaccine strategy is going to really be put to the test. We called a few locals in the UK to get a sense of how people are feeling about it there. Mixed bag of emotions for uh, Freedom Day. Um, For myself personally, um, being a vulnerable person, we are going to be living with COVID-19 for a very, very long time. should be called Personal Responsibility Day because that's essentially all that we're saying here. Take personal responsibility. The clinically vulnerable will obviously be concerned given that on the 18th of July, things are unsafe to do for them, but suddenly on the 19th, things are okay. Yeah, you can hear the trepidation there, can't you, Jan? Yeah, you can. That's a good point about clinically ill and vulnerable people. They're the ones that are going to be suffering really adverse effects of COVID-19 if they were to catch it. So I imagine there'd be people for and people against. Yeah, we'll get a public health expert's opinion from England in just a moment. But first, here's Bevan Shields. He's the Europe correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Bevan, what's the mood like there now? It's happy, to be honest. I have to say there is probably a mix of relief and trepidation about so-called Freedom Day. And I don't want to be a downer, but I think actually the only people calling it Freedom Day are politicians and the newspapers. I've not actually heard a normal (laughs) person call it that. Bevan, can you paint us a picture of 
what the UK looks like on July 18 versus July 19. Like how much difference is that 24 hours going to make for your average British person? It kind of depends on who they are and what they like to do. Basically, it's the, it's the removal of the last restrictions that were first imposed in the big lockdown we had here from Christmas. So it's things like nightclubs and theatres reopening. Big events can happen without any capacity limits. There's no caps on the number of people who can go to weddings and funerals. And they're even doing away with things like the social distancing rule of standing one metre away from people. The big one, I think, that is a, is going to be a big change for a lot of people and is probably the most controversial is ditching the mandatory mask wearing. So from Monday, you can basically wear a mask if you like or if you don't like. And that's the, the key thing that has kind of concerned some people, I think. That is the one potential flashpoint. And that said, you know, Boris Johnson can say what he likes about masks, but ultimately a lot of these decisions also come down to local decision makers. And the, and the London mayor who is in charge of the tube and buses says, well, you can kind of forget Freedom Day. Next week, masks will still be mandatory on public transport in the capital. So it will look and feel different, but the, the huge changes really happened a month or two ago when restaurants reopened and people started getting back to the office and you know, out to parks and stuff like that. What will be a really interesting question is what is the public's new threshold of deaths per day that they're prepared to wear? And yeah. if it gets into several hundred a day, then things are going to get tricky. Do you think they're getting it right? What do you reckon? You know, I have to say I do because the, for a few reasons. One, the public compliance with restrictions was fading anyway. And I think if they had gone on longer when there was such widespread compliance with vaccinations, people would have got really cranky and there could have been some issues. And at some point, the world is going to have to not rely on restrictions anymore. They're going to have to put their trust in vaccines. And that's what the UK is doing. So it's risky, but I can absolutely understand why they're doing it. That was Bevan Shields, who basically thinks the government in the UK are doing the right thing right now. He's the Europe Coro for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Let's go to someone who um, has a very different view, a very vocal opponent of this decision to open up. Yeah, Professor Martin McKee is a professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Martin, why do you think this is the wrong strategy? I think it would be the wrong strategy anywhere. This is completely unprecedented to be removing restrictions at a time when cases of COVID are rising. To actually take them away while they're rising is really inexplicable. But a case is really the right measure to be focusing on because deaths and hospitalizations are astronomically lower than they were at January when your last wave was peaking. Uh, well, they're quite a bit lower. I wouldn't say they're astronomically lower, but they're also rising. And I think one of the things that we have realised about this pandemic is, like every other in epidemic, in fact, that it undergoes uh, exponential growth so that even though the increase may be small at the beginning, it very soon becomes quite high. And what we're now seeing is almost 4,000 people in hospital with COVID at the present time, and that's up over 1,000 from last week. We expect to see a lag between cases and hospitalizations. The ratio of hospitalizations to cases will still be low, but it's still going up. 
Man, is there a metric by which you would advise the UK to open up? Like at what point do you reckon doing this would be the right thing to do? Well, the first thing to be perfectly honest is that the cases would need to be going down. I mean, we need to have a sustained downward trend and we would need to have them low enough so that if there were outbreaks, which there would be from time to time with cases being introduced from elsewhere, our capacity to investigate those outbreaks and suppress them would be in place. We're nowhere near that at the minute. What would you focus on? Would it be about the cases or would you be looking at deaths or hospitalisations to make that call to open up? Well, I would be looking at all of these things. First of all, we need to remember that each of the cases has a probability of going on to become long COVID. So about 15% of people who are infected with COVID will go on to have long COVID, which can be quite disabling. We have about a million people who have had uh, long COVID in the UK. We have about half a million or more who've had it for over a year. So that in itself is a problem. Obviously, when people are admitted to hospital, it's also a major issue because we have quite limited capacity in the NHS. You know, we have underinvested in it for years. And we need to remember that people with COVID who are admitted to an intensive care unit stay much longer than the usual patient in an intensive care unit. Someone going in after surgery might stay one or two days, whereas somebody who needs ventilation with COVID will be in for about 20 days. And if they need dialysis for about 30 days. So it doesn't take that many people to block up the capacity. So how long would you keep the UK locked down? You're talking about wanting fairly low case numbers or at least a a massive drop. And it begs the question, what's the point of getting vaccinated if you're going to stay locked down despite the fact the death rate is much lower? Well, we're not locked down at all. I mean, there are a number of things that you cannot do at the minute, like go to nightclubs. But to be perfectly honest, you can do most other things. You know, people, we've got indoor dining there isn't that much of an imposition. You're required to wear face coverings in public transport and so on. But again, that's not that much given the uh, nearly 50,000 new cases every day. Life is going on pretty well, much as normal. Professor, how would you look at the way that Australia has handled the pandemic comparative to Britain? Do you think that we're doing it better or worse? What's your thought there? I don't think you need a scientist to tell you that. It's very obvious that you're doing it better. You haven't had the death rate that we have. You haven't got the misery and suffering of people with long COVID. You haven't had the children that have been orphaned, the people who have been widowed. So clearly you're doing far better than we are. What are your thoughts on why this is the strategy the politicians in Britain are choosing now? So essentially... Two weeks ago, the backbench committee in the Conservative Party had an election. The, the chair was re-elected. He is a lockdown sceptic. And at that time, it became very clear that Boris Johnson did not have the political support to continue with the restrictions. So at that time, we had really a bonfire of all of the regulations. Everything went out the window. Then over the weekend, polling data came out, which showed that a majority of the British population were very worried about the removal of restrictions. Members of Parliament were getting bombarded with uh, emails and letters from their constituents who were also concerned, particularly the clinically extremely vulnerable people who essentially have been told, just go home, stay at home and don't expose yourself to any risk of the virus and really cut adrift. And so I think what you then saw whenever the announcement came was a massive rolling back from the rhetoric the week before. So this is purely a political issue. It's not a scientific issue at all. But that's what politicians are there to do, right? They're there to balance out health, science, economy, the whole range of factors. That's why scientists don't run the country. 
That's absolutely right. The scientists advise and the politicians decide. But where the problem arises is when the politicians say that they're following the science and they're clearly not. That's the problem. And there are so many things that are just simply illogical in it. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And for this to be happening at a time when cases are literally going through the roof, it just undermines confidence in the messaging. And that is really bad when you're trying to bring a pandemic under control. That was Martin McKee. He's a professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine making a a very strong argument there, Jan. The point that really made a lot of sense was why do they need these extra freedoms if they already have quite a lot of freedoms given case numbers are rising so much? Yeah, I'd be very interested to know what's going to happen from here if deaths increase, if COVID cases increase. Does that mean the horse has bolted? Will you ever be able to get the British people back into Mm. lockdown if you need to? That's going to be a big question moving forward. Yeah, it's a very interesting case study for us to watch here in Australia right now. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, the US intelligence report on UFOs. This is a story that you've asked us to look into and it's well worth it. Listener.